Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm very well, David. Very well. Excited. Excited on many fronts. We've got a really cool episode, a challenge coming up for you straight up. For people who listened last time, I left David with a challenge of coming to terms with whether or not there should be a license or some sort of licensing process required for uh, raising children, for being a parent. But uh, I do have some interesting housekeeping news uh, if we're ready okay. for that. Are we Are we ready yes, for that? Yes, I do as well. Yeah, go for it. Okay, well, I've got a few things. I wanted to remind people about our contest for Patreon subscribers to come up with a concept and or a design. You're welcome to actually design a new tarot card, one of the major arcana, uh, something that is uh, has contemporary resonance. And we've got uh, David will mention the two books in the in the uh, the notes for the show. But there's a choice of two really really cool. Uh, high-value books for the winner of that competition. So a new tarot card. It can just be a concept description. It would be cool if it were a design, if that's how you are so inclined. Uh, Another thing, uh, we're going to start rolling out some full-scale bibliographies on, on some of the subjects and topic areas that we've been covering and I thought the first one that uh, we'd make available is my Native American Studies uh, bibliography, which I'm really proud of. It, it comes from a lot of years, uh, and, and a lot of people have contributed to it. It's a lot more interesting than what you'd get just Googling on who the famous Native American writers are. It, it's, it's more detailed, more serious than that. We're working out some price points for those because we think there are some real value, but uh, we have potentially uh, between 10 and, and uh, 15 of those to be rolled out in, in the months ahead to be made available. Uh, we also want to remind people about our book club idea, which we're going to start in the fall when people are back sort of from uh, Labor Day and, and back rolling with a little bit crisper weather. It's a little bit sort of sleepy to to launch something like that in August. And we have a very interesting uh, opening book Uh, which is uh, something I think will be really exciting. It cuts across uh, popular culture, multimedia. uh, There's a lot of stuff going on in it. But another thing that we're rolling out, uh, this is uh, we're going to put in play a new game. Uh, we, We enjoy play. We think games are very important. So every episode in part one, David is going to be given uh, five words, and he has to choose two of those. And his task is to work those in as seamlessly as possible into his discussion in part one. And our (laughs) challenge for listeners is to pick out which those two words were and to email us. And we have uh, some cool prizes for people over starting in the fall, well, we're going to keep track here of, of who's doing well on this. But it's a good challenge for David to have to slip these things in. I do this with my students. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, it gives you a little bit of a challenge of words that you need to use. We, it gets us more in touch with words. Meanwhile, for you listeners, you get to uh, 
maybe pick out something a little bit more about David's thinking and to to listen a little bit more closely. The secret words for every episode. He has two for today. So that's my, uh, well, that's my housekeeping <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's going to be, it's really fun. I have, I have my words for this episode and I have absolutely no idea where they're going to go. But it seems fun. It seems like uh, you know you have to wait for the proper opportunity to present itself to to kind of to kind of spring them. You know, I can't I can't make it seem too forced or it'll you know. No, it'll be it'll obvious. Just, it'll, we'll we'll see through you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay, so I have some housekeeping on my end too. It's about uh, the Patreon that we have started. So Chris and I are. Uh, constantly attempting to evolve the show and figure out what works and what doesn't work. And we're both really happy with how the Patreon is going so far. But we had a discussion around uh, how to make the show um, more accessible to people who perhaps don't have a whole ton of time on their hands. That's that's essentially the, the major problem that Chris and I are trying to work through because we do a relatively good job I would say a really good job, actually, of uh, sort of telling listeners uh, what to expect for the next episode and then, for the most part, getting to those. You know, as we've said before, this is a free-flowing conversation that we don't 100% plan out in advance, so it tends to go off in different directions. But what I noticed was that, you know, we have eight Patreon episodes in the can so far. Each one of them runs about two and a half hours, and they are of a piece. They do tend to cover... Uh, similar territory. We're going over some very important to our, you know, general cosmology ideas of, uh, you know, the crystal radio, the pirate radio, the ghost radio, things like in the first segments, things like values and imagination and childhood and, and how to actually raise children in today's world and some of the issues with things like, you know, boyhood and everything from boyhood to, you know, quantum uh, physics and, and, and you know the the changing the past through using things like the tarot. So there's these this wide range of things that we're talking about, and I realize that eight episodes of two and a half hours each might be a bit daunting for people who maybe just want to dip their toe in. Maybe they want to listen to one or two episodes and not all eight of them. Because I know that that's true for me. I am subscribed to a few Patreons and they put out a similar amount of content and I don't listen to every single episode of every single podcast and I don't think that it's wise for us to expect sort of the same thing. So I'd like to do one thing and then make a proposal and see what you, the listener, thinks of it and uh, also, also get Chris's input here. So my pitch is to... Hit us up at the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com with different topics that you would like to hear Chris and I cover. And the reason for this is because going forward, I think that we are going to be much more intentional on every episode with the frame. So, what I think we have going right now is a slight problem with framing devices in which our podcast is this kind of long free form conversation that 
one connects to the other, right? So if you uh, listen to episode 46, that flows into episode 47 and so on and so forth. Chris and I are looking to do a much more uh, quote-unquote monster of the week style where we pick a specific frame, a particular piece of esoterica, uh, pop culture, or sort of general Fordian weirdness and use a discussion and a deep dive into that topic to peripherally and occasionally directly talk about some of our favorite pet issues of this show, No Country. Um, So Chris, I will then turn it over to you. Did what I say just make sense? Are you on board? Do you think this is a good direction for the show to go in? Uh, yes, uh, I, look, I, I think it, it did make sense. Um, although the idea of sense is is a very important uh, issue to come up in the in the second uh, part of, of this this episode uh, behind the paywalls. I've been thinking a lot about what we mean by when things make sense, but I'm going to answer yes to that in the moment. Uh, because we've got, you know, a lot of stuff to talk about. I, I think I am on board with that, and I uh, believe uh, our listeners will be. There's a lot of flexibility. And the underlying big idea always is that, uh, and we didn't invent this. This is uh, something that everyone sort of finds out at some point. Everything connects, you know, everything kind of yeah. circulates back. And, and there, there are limitations on our thinking that, that make sure that that happens. Um, and maybe we should be grateful for them, and sometimes we should resist them. But things do come back. So we, we're we trying to have it both ways in the sense of some very strong standalone topics that might appeal particularly to listeners at any given time, uh, but an underlying uh, larger theme and journey that uh, they can tune into and be part of in, in whatever way their time frame and lifestyles you know, works for them. Yep, exactly. Right. Yeah, we want for the hardcore listeners who do enjoy listening to every single episode, all two hours and 30 minutes of it. We salute you. Uh, I'm happy that you exist. Um, You know, we're just trying to be kind of kind of flex here. So I'll table that for now. I think that Chris and I have the idea that next week we will start with a a frame of talking about uh, Malaysia Air Flight 370 and its disappearance as a starting topic. Um, So that should be fun. We'll have a lot of cool uh, discussion points to talk about that then. But now, on today, what are we going to talk about? Okay, well, I left you with the challenge of speaking to the issue of whether or not uh, parents should have a license to procreate. Um, And there's obviously a lot of of contention around that. I mean, a lot of people say, look, it would be too hard to enforce (laughs) And on and on and on. But I think, bef- you know, without looking at the practical sort of implementation ideas of it, uh, let's look at it in terms of, of, of principles. Where are you on that issue? Just how do you fall? I fall firmly on uh, the side that they should not have to have a license to be parents. Okay. And I've given this a lot of thought. I have been thinking about this all week. And um, the reason why that is, uh, gosh, this is going to sound so deep and so wide, but I have a, an idea of human uh, uh, freedom, essentially, 
um, and an idea of, um, I think that giving birth to children is a deeply important and a deeply uh, spiritual act. And I think that introducing some kind of uh, test for it might keep out keep people from a sort of um, a sort of growth that they can only achieve through the act of having children uh, itself. And while I do understand all the negatives that go along with it, I think that um, there are some people who might not be ready to have children right up until the moment that they have a child. And I wouldn't want them to be denied the experience of doing that. So what do you think as far as this goes? Are you going to devil's advocate or <laughs> are we just going to kind of riff on it? What do you think? Well, I'm of two minds, and that's why I raised the question with you, because I often you know, try mm-hmm. to use you as a sort of sounding board triangulation point for my own thoughts. Yeah. Uh, I think right. that's what good you know, smart friends are, help you do. Uh, I, I really have some complicated feelings about this because uh, I, I, ha- I know someone who, uh, a woman who made the decision to have a child on her own, uh, and I, I completely understood that, and I support her in that. And I would hate to think that she didn't have uh, my support, and yet something did trouble me about that idea. Um, and I think it is just sort of obvious that uh, raising a child, particularly in today's environment, is is difficult alone uh, in terms of time, energy, uh, money. Um, mm-hmm. Another thought uh, crossed my desk. I've been trying to get my make my peace with artificial intelligence on many fronts, and I've mentioned my interest in computational linguistics and how uh, machine learning systems are analyzing language. Well, I've, it's come to my attention that that they're also being used in things like mediation. Uh, in divorce mm-hmm. proceedings, for instance, just purely on a pilot sort of basis. But uh, I am getting from from colleagues uh, some feedback on on where this is going. And of course, we think of you know AI and robotics in terms of like well replacing warehouse workers for Amazon. I think it's much more substantial than that. But one mm-hmm. uh, bit of of insight on this sort of topic that is purely from an AI point of view. Uh, was what what is the logical argument for not uh, insisting on at least the median level uh, of income? Um, uh. Now, that is a very hard line position, but I suggest that, that is what uh, an artificial intelligence system, how, how, how they're going to analyze some of, of human behavior. And like it or not, uh, we are going to have to adjust to that kind of that point of view, um, mm-hmm. and there are obviously you know human you know natural intelligences walking around on two legs that share that point of view. But I, I think mm-hmm. it is interesting to to ask that question. the The other thing I was thinking about is, is purely the population. Uh, you know, we have something on the order of seven point eight billion. We're apparently heading towards 10 billion. That's obviously, uh, that's not reflected in American growth terms, of course. Uh, It's not evenly distributed, as we know. Um, But I'm wondering, 
you know, if any thoughts about uh, parenting now have to be indexed against a more acute uh, ecological and environmental uh, sense of pressures. So I understand exactly the, what your point of view is, and I would say that's mine. I, I think that there's something um, sacred and mystical and uh, fundamental about the, the right to have children, and yet mm -hmm. I'm still troubled. So that's my response. Well, absolutely. I think that when it comes to population and the environment, I've heard this put very well. I believe it was in one of Michael Schellenberger's books. Uh, Schellenberger gets into a lot of trouble because he is very concerned with climate alarmism um, and has compiled some very interesting information about um, about climate change and about some practical steps that we can take towards actually mitigating climate change that don't include things like uh, solar power. I think he's a big uh, he's a big nuclear advocate, right, of nuclear power. Mm -hmm. One of the things that he talks about in terms of population uh, is the idea that we don't actually have a population problem, but rather an allocation problem. And the figures that he uses uh, are that, you know, to, to sort of have a homestead or a farm of five acres requires about 20 people to manage it full time, right? So if people were properly allocated just within the United States, you could fit a decent chunk of the world's population, which the United States already is, um, into America with no problems if they were each given this sort of five-acre homestead to tend to, to have one job on, right? So the problem becomes cities and the idea that we are all kind of piled into places like New York and L.A. and, you know, Delhi, right, um, and, and Beijing. You know, everybody kind of stacked on top of each other working telejobs um, and, you know, eating fast food. That is just a really inefficient way of... Um, of sort of allocating people. So if there was this government oversight, right, which would still fall, unfortunately, for me at least, uh, under the under the rubric of, you know, restricting people's freedoms because, you know, you'd be dictating where people uh, live in a very kind of strict way. You know, you would get your assign, your, you and your family would get your assignment and somebody would end up in, uh, I don't know, Nebraska somewhere, you know, perish the, the thought. <laughs> Which wouldn't but, um, be Nebraska, as you know it anymore, if that were to happen, though, of course. So that's another right. way to that's another uh, open question there. But I hear what you're saying. Yes, yes. So essentially, I think that Schellenberger makes a really compelling case for that. You know, it's it's entirely possible that we don't that we really do have an allocation problem, and that we need to seriously consider where where people are being sent, and. Um, you know, coming, you know, sort of moving out from that idea, uh, the idea that the planet can actually hold a, a lot more people, you know, perhaps more than double what we have right now with no real problems so long as these major issues of, you know, uh, major oil companies uh, and how they pollute. There's been some pretty interesting infographics that I've seen that most of the major pollution comes from about a dozen corporations that have very little regulation or oversight. Um, 
and if we could just find some way to kind of rope those in without completely tanking the economy, because it brings to mind uh, things like transportation, um, you know, the, the, the personal automobile would have to probably be done away with in favor of some kind of public transportation system that actually works. Uh, an allocation, I think you have that that solution. But it doesn't really fix the problem of, you know, we have the world that we have. And in that context, you're correct. There is a population problem. So I kind of did a big circuit there. But I, I think that it's important to make sure that we're, you know, that we're focusing on like where the where the real problems are so that we don't end up doing things like, you know, uh, restricting who's allowed to have a child. Well, look, I agree with that in, in, in one sense. I, I think the, you know, the whole allocation issue, uh, I mean, that really is the exactly the argument that, that Buckminster Fuller put up so beautifully quite a long time ago, mm -hmm. that that really okay. was the nature of, of the problem. And I think some of, of his uh, thoughts on that are still extremely relevant. I, I'm hoping that he's one of those visionary sort of 60s and 70s thinkers who, you know, clearly an eccentric, but I think someone who should be uh, back on the table, or at least on thinking, you know, people's tables, to to, to really check out what, what he said. I also think he was a very good writer. But the problem that I, I, I still have is it seems to me that, that this whole issue is part of a bigger question about rights and responsibilities, the rights of individuals versus the responsibilities of individuals to a larger social uh, network. And one of our ongoing you know, questions is the, the nature of culture and culture versus society, because we've said there is a difference. Uh, society is kind of unquestioned, and it really doesn't have uh, necessarily uh, any uh, real history behind it. It can disappear and change at any given moment. Culture is not so so easily defined or or changed. Uh, and we go into more of, of detail on that in uh, in our part two segments. But it, it does seem to me there is a real problem of if we we say there's allocation issues, well then we're going to be sending someone to Nebraska or sending someone from Nebraska to New York or whatever. But we're going to be we're going to be imposing some restrictions upon individuals from either a governmental or corporate point of view, and to me, both of those options are not really very appealing. And yet, right. I I do um, I do think that there is a kind of unavoidable uh, nature to those, given the crisis that. That we face on multiple, well, not just one crisis, many crises. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. yeah, it really is the question of the moment right now, especially when we come to things like COVID. And I know that we haven't really talked all that much about COVID, but it really does bring up some interesting moral questions, particularly with news that has broken recently about the new Delta variant of COVID and how it can, it seems to spread from uh, unvaccinated people more quickly than through vaccinated people. There have been lots of questions about perhaps restricting the movement of unvaccinated people, um, of somehow using uh, tax breaks or other 
coercive measures to to get people vaccinated. I think I think the planet at large, because COVID is obviously a worldwide phenomena, as is climate change, are really raising some some deep moral issues about you know what do we actually do here? You know we have world governments and then we have countries that have their own governments that are some of which are beholden to these sort of more worldwide organizations. Um, what is their kind of like role in restricting the 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 freedoms? And that is a, that is a word, by the way, that I have been pondering uh, for the past two weeks um, because I, I really think that it's a super loaded word, and I think that a lot of uh, friends of mine who are not Americans who who don't understand how Americans work, I always tell them that they have to try to start understanding what the word freedom means to us before they can really get get to the get to the heart of the issues. Um, but what what is it? What what do freedoms mean uh, in the context of this global society? Right? What measures do we actually take to keep the whole um, intact? Right? How do we avoid cataclysm or you know the apocalypse uh is it is it through more control more surveillance more uh more laws more putting people in jails um through through licensing right because let's say that a license for um being able to be a parent let's say that that does come into into play and i know you mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation right it brings up the issue of you know well who is who is that going to impact uh, more than, than than others, right? Like it's probably going to affect poor people, obviously, uh, probably more people of color, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you get into all these funky, difficult issues and people just, people have these kind of hard line opinions on them. And I'm sort of thrown by a loop for that because they are so massive that I don't think it's necessarily... I think having conversations like we're having right now, I think this is one of the actually most interesting conversations we've had in our show so far, at least for me. Uh, but I think any kind of any kind of certainty becomes a problem, don't you? Well, I, I think that's well said. I mean, I, we're, we're not big fans of certainty as in a kind of fixedness and in a sort of ossification. And, uh, you know, the, the, the inevitable... Uh, tendency towards orthodoxy and rigidity of thought that just isn't capable of a flexible uh, change and, and some sort of organic evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that really is a concern. Um, I mean, what I notice about these issues and, and this to go back to kind of the, the AI point of view, which I think is so, in a sense, I always think of that as the alien intelligence point of view because it's yeah. so, uh, well, it's, it's clear cut. And, and it, yeah. it really is becoming something that is, is taking on a life of its own. And the more that, that anyone learns about how AI is developing, the more they'll, they'll realize just how, how quickly it's evolving into something that we're all going to face. Um, I, I, what, what puzzles me so much about the last two years, and I still feel I, like I'm kind of coming back to America you know, having lived half my life overseas, I, I've been back now for for a decade, uh, fully residential here. Uh, although there was time in Africa, but I still feel like I'm adjusting to it. And of course, it's changed so much. But I know a, like quite a number of people who 
I would have said would be totally against any form of regulation, whether it be corporate or, or governmentally driven. Yeah. They have now moved very solidly into, yes, we, we want more regulation. We actually want more social control. And I just, and then of course, there are many issues where, you know, you point that, at, you know, that that's what they're advocating and they go, oh, no, 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 we don't want it there. And the, the, my point is, I think that the, you know, the AI perspective would be, well, no, these kinds of, of regulatory uh, approaches or said another way, an approach to responsibilities to the larger social organism or machine outweigh individual considerations. That's really yeah. the argument. Uh, yeah. those cut across all the issues and you're not going to get to pick and choose, you know, which ones you go for. It's going to be a flat mm -hmm. rate grid program or not. And that's what kind of stops me from, cause I'm all over the map about some of these things as I think, you know, mm -hmm. most humans are. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely, I mean, there's been to just to piggyback off of what you were saying, there's been so many issues directly pertaining to the big picture when it comes to COVID. One that comes to mind at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, once lockdowns were being discussed as a preventative measure to help stop the spread of the virus, um, I saw a report from, it was either the World Economic Forum or uh, some other kind of global think tank that was concerning uh, supply chains, basically, uh, food supply chains to third world nations. And it essentially posited that by shutting down uh, the supply chains to some of these countries, you would be uh, directly responsible for the deaths of uh, something to the effect of two million third world children, right? So that opens up a huge quandary in the machine, right? If you want to think, start thinking about these things in terms of what's called a QALY, which is quality adjusted life years, right? The, the lives of these children who would essentially be starved to death by going into lockdown, what weight do they have against the protecting the lives of primarily elderly uh, people, uh, primarily in first world nations, you know? So these are, these are questions that an AI, uh, could go in and do some math and, and sort of perhaps maybe, maybe not, but perhaps spit out a kind of answer that could, uh, you know, lead to these actions. But, you know, all it really does is end up with a lot of people, uh, kind of arguing back and forth on, on, on Twitter. Well, for the moment, it does. And, and, and I think that's not a bad thing. But I think that that we we are accepting an algorithmic approach to so many things in our lives. And we're probably uh, unaware of, of how completely that mindset, if you don't mind that humanizing of the <laughs> of the mechanics, uh, that's going on much more fully than we realize. And, and we are going this direction. I mean, it's been more than a hundred. I mean, we, the idea of, of, of artificial humans is a very, very old theme. I mean, 
very old in many cultures. I mean, it's, we we have you know the whole Pygmalion myth. We've got Pinocchio on and on and on. But the the idea of uh, becoming more machine like in 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 human you know bodily terms, the cyborg thing. Mm-hmm. I think that has missed the entire point of a mindset that is more driven. Uh, not by Doctor Mister Spock's sort of logic, but just a more um, well, an aerial view. I mean that that is yeah. what these systems are being designed to provide, and I I don't know if we're going to really uh, we're we're not going to like that. You know, I think there is going to be not just arguments on Twitter. I think there's going to be arguments in the street about this as we progress further. I don't see there's any any way around that. Uh, but yeah. I do wonder if we don't need to be more aware of where our own dividing lines are on these issues, because there are mm-hmm. some segments of life where we think, no, we really, really do need order. We need system. We need top-down authority, management, guidance, leadership, on and on and on. And then there's a whole bunch of other aspects of life where we say, no, we really want things free to air. We want free market. We want entropy. We want chaos. We want things to take a more natural sort of shape. And uh, I, I kind of want to steer back to the child issue and give you um, sure. yeah. a, a kind of practical example of, of, a, of something. And I think we all can relate to this idea. Um it's an archetypal kind of kid. And for me, yeah. his name was Clark. I won't mention his last name because, you know, who knows? Who knows where he got up to? Uh, <laughs> but he was, not, uh, he was not a good athlete. He was not necessarily a smart kid. He was a smart Alex sort of kid. He was not especially good looking or bad looking. He was not archetypal in any of those ways. But... During the elementary school years, he was the first person to introduce any kind of nasty, obscenity, funky word, any kind of idea that was new and challenging. Uh, Quite a bit of it had to do with butts. He was very interested in anything to do with butts. So yes. I think he might have been the first person I'd ever, you know, going back to like, you know, second grade. I think he might have been the first person to use that word, you know, not your behind or your bottom, but your butt, you know, and yeah, everything right. had a tonal quality of, oh, this is something that you don't want your mother to know that you know about. You know, he yeah. was the guy, he was the kid who who brought this into play. And mm-hmm. So do we want that kind of figure? Do you want Gus to either meet Clark or to be the Clark figure? There's always that possible. I ain't saying anything. I'm just saying, you know, none of us Uh, knows what we do when we're, you know, away from our parents. (laughs) You know, you got to get used to that Uh idea. But, I mean, here is an example, a personification of sort of chaotic – uh, forbidden knowledge, an alternative path, definitely against the program, definitely against order and the establishment and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Clark is the anti-regulation 
you know, element. Uh, I mean, what do you think about that kind of, of archetypal kid who's out there in every neighborhood? Man, I had one. His name was Billy. I will also leave his last name off because I'm going to tell you about Billy. Billy uh, was much more intense than Clark, uh, although maybe not. Maybe there's some stuff that's being left out. Uh, Billy was somebody who always knew things related to sex, right? Yes. Well, that's on track. Yeah, this would have been uh, fifth grade going into sixth. And I spent a lot of time with Billy uh, at his house where he would sneak us into this. This is going to get gross. I'll I'll warn people. I'll I'll keep it as (laughs) as clean as I can, but it's going to get gross. So Billy introduced the concept of masturbation, uh, first of all, as he's like as something that you can actually do, and you know describing it mechanically, which you know me and my other buddies were kind of you know mystified and like, oh really, really, which right, led to, right, you know finding that out and you know completing the act and thinking that you're gonna die. I don't know if that was the case for you, but I remember thinking like I've made a horrible mistake. Um, but with Billy, uh, he would sneak us into his parents' room when they were away and actually show us Polaroids of his parents having sex. There you uh, go. Yeah. And and there was one instance where uh, <laughs> Billy, Billy was completely insane. So there was one time we were staying the night at his house and we walked into his room and Billy had this stuffed dog that he cut a hole in and we walked in to find Billy... Uh, having sex with a stuffed dog and when we walked in he made eye contact with us and began laughing maniacally that was his thing that was that was billy you know that's polaroid and stuff and stuffed dog so when you bring up uh (laughs) when you bring up gus meeting somebody like that my first thought is absolutely not there is not going to be a billy in uh in my son's life but um, I think I turned out okay, right? I think I, I, I will never forget him for as long as I live. And I think that I was 12 <laughs> years old when I, mm-hmm. when I knew him. Mm-hmm. Um, will never forget him for as long as I live. And there were some, there was some value crude though. It may be in seeing some of the things that I saw at Billy's, uh, parents' apartment, um, that definitely kind of informed, you know, who I was at, at that time in my life, you know? Um, I think that it will be a challenge for me to not be, uh, just overprotective in general, um, just based on some things that I've experienced and seen within my life. But, um, I don't think that you can necessarily control or regulate that out of a, out of a child's existence. You really just kind of have to cross your fingers and at certain for certain points it it was certain things you have to say you know i hope they get through it college is another big one you're going to go to college and you're going to drink a lot of booze right and you're going to do a lot of stupid things if you're doing college correctly right there's a right (laughs) and a wrong way to do college and um you know and he's going to do those things i would actually probably i would hate to see uh you know colleges you know regulate uh, party like frat parties and things like that um, to the extent that they no longer exist at all. I think that they can do a lot and have been completely negligent in, you know, keeping 
girls and women safe at those things. I think they could do a lot more on that front. But I would hope that they didn't go away altogether because I think that there is life experience and life value in uh, experiencing the intensely strange and off-putting such as I did. Well, I, I think most sensible people would, would agree with that and are very concerned about uh, the idea of control negating personal agency and decision-making. Um, there, there really is a, a, a just a, you know, a, a life, an eternal struggle with that. I think it's not just something unique to, to modernity or to our specific you know, time. Although these issues do seem to be reaching a boiling point where control mechanisms, to my mind, are coming from sources that I never associated with that desire. Uh, I, I'm seeing more and more social control to the point where I'm not sure if I had a child of, of college or university age, how uh, encouraging I would be about participating in, in academia mm, and right. and. Um, from any level, both from the, the scholastic point of view and the recreational uh, cultural point of view. I, I, I think it's a very confusing time. And I, I'm sorry for a lot of young people, uh, people like my students, who, who I don't think are getting the full whack of the fun stuff and are getting a lot of confusing messages about the control uh, side of things. But it is interesting about these characters like Clark and Billy and, and all that they represent in terms of knowledge that is not part of what is accepted by the elders or the adults, the leaders in a, in, in a community or in a family. And yet we have talked about in uh, other cultures, indigenous cultures, where a kind of bruhosh sort of shaman figure by definition, steps outside of the norms and mores and uh, is a, a sort of uh, bridge figure, you know, going between the worlds, bringing back, you know, messages and visions and dreams that may not be at all appropriate for, uh, you know, day-to-day -day life. But that's how mm -hmm. the culture in question nourish themselves replenish themselves, reinvent themselves, and heal themselves through through crises and through the intervention of, of other larger uh, social organizations. I mean, what, what about that aspect of if we don't feel good about, uh, it's hard to feel good about someone taking Polaroids of their parents having sex, but I think that's exactly where these these kinds of, of, of figures go to. That's that's exactly on point. So mm -hmm. we can't get the uh, the innovation, the the education, so to speak, without mm -hmm. some of the that nasty bit. Can we? Or maybe you know? I don't no, know. no, I don't. I really don't think we we can. And this is touching on a very uh, a much larger conversation that can be applied to almost any hot button issue that's happening these days, especially revolving around issues of censorship and propriety and toxicity and all these kind of things. It's, do we want, um, you know, uh, do we want control and to stamp things out or do we want 
uh, understanding and contextualization of these things. And I think that it's a seesaw back and forth depending on the day and depending on the mood of the person who you might ask about these questions. Uh, it's very, uh, well, I guess context dependent about you know what situations mean. But I think that right now one of the major kind of social fights that I witness on a day-to-day basis when I do go onto the hell site that is Twitter. I don't have a Facebook, but when I do go on Twitter, I see this all the time, is a kind of hardliner, uh, uh, sort of totalitarian, authoritarian streak within the everyday individual, where it's becoming more and more, I think, socially acceptable to say that there should be a parental governmental uh, body that goes into people's everyday lives and dictates with a broad stroke of a pen uh, what is sort of proper and right for for people to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I do. To the point where, to to the point where you know, um, you, people think that some people should be put in jail for saying certain words at certain times, right? And I just I could personally I can't get behind that in any way, shape, or form because I think that the alternative force to that and what's really missing is the idea of the the contextualizer or you know uh, the storyteller. I think the artist in a lot of ways has a very, very clear role that it's very, very um, currently underrepresented and under uh, not really being thought of as, an, as even an alternative to this kind of governmental oversight, right? Because, I mean, art at its best, um, and by extension, the artist or the storyteller or the shaman, who I put all under the same broad umbrella that I don't have a name for quite yet, the, maybe the mystic, um, what they're really good at doing is not making any kind of value judgments, uh, not putting down any sort of diktats that have to be followed to the letter, but are instead uh, very, they're able to show the difficulty, the obtuseness, the complexity, the ambiguity of different scenarios, right? A good book uh, doesn't really work if it turns into too much of a polemic, right? It has to be a a kind of um, a study of, of of a particular character, a study of, of of darkness, of meanness, right? Good music does this too. Gangster rap does this really well, right? Where you're introduced to a world and characters within that world that are, by any extent of the imagination, uh, terrible people, but it has the effect of humanizing these people by allowing you to listen to their stories for for an hour or so. So anyway, I hope that's not too much of a ramble, but I really do think that the fight between authoritarianism and uh, kind of artistry and um, understanding, basically a a conflict between warlike thinking, an actual war between warlike thinking and understanding and togetherness and and kind of peacetime thinking, um, has really kind of wormed its way into people's brains as of late. Well, I absolutely uh, think it has. This is probably short of, of uh, I guess, you know, really basic concerns about, well, I live in a place that we've got some real water issues and we're in the midst of a drought. And, you know, there's some environmental issues that I think are always really uh, should be top of mind uh, and causes for real concern. But I, I certainly think the rigidity, the incredible uh evil in my mind i will go so far as to say evil of uh 
extreme political correctness, uh, mm -hmm. the new orthodoxy, uh, mm -hmm. the relentless uh, superficiality of, of cancel culture, uh, a kind of formalization of some ideological principles that are dubious in themselves. Uh, I think they're doubly dubious because they, they've become uh, entrenched without examination and they're being applied with uh, an almost mechanical level of uh, lack of context. Uh, yeah. So we've really taken on board that machine learning point of view of you said that word. Well, that, no, that's it. You know, and it's like, wait a minute. I mean, come on here. Uh, I mean, right, there are just right. there are ludicrous examples of this every day. What surprises me is uh, what part of society they're emanating from. I, I did not expect that when I was younger. Um, I would never have thought that that we were getting to uh, a level of restriction and social control led uh, and championed by the people we are, you know, that, mm -hmm. that mystifies me. I just. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most chilling things that I hear on an almost daily basis is that, um, you know, when people bring up the idea of freedom of speech, for example, um, people who have a more authoritarian bent to their ways of looking at things will say, you know, well, you know, there is freedom of speech. You're free to say whatever you want, but just realize that there's uh that there are consequences <laughs> for that. Chills, chills my blood, man. Yeah. That makes uh, my, makes my, I get my, the hair raises up on the back of my neck and my blood runs cold every time I hear that. I don't think that people realize how sociopathic they sound when they when they do that you know and you'd like to think that it's just a few dingbats who have kind of like you know they're confused and they're you know they're kind of looking to make sure that people don't get hurt and that everybody's kind of you know in a place where where everybody's happy and safe and all this kind of stuff but underneath it there is this sinister cold-blooded reptilian authoritarian streak that that they have to reckon with you know, they're not going to, but they really should. Well, absolutely. I mean, it makes some like, you know, living in Vegas, it makes, you know, like people who are like the hardcore loan shark types, you know, you get what I'm saying? You know, you know, those kind of, yeah, you know, yeah. it makes those people look really sincere, straightforward and warm hearted, yeah. you know, consequences, I, you know, yeah. it's like, well, you know, and it's such a cowardly sort of dogpile thing of always through these anonymous channels and you know you you never know what issue will, will trigger this sort of feeding frenzy of of bizarre mass psychosis and we really can't complain because our technology innovations of the last uh, 40 years have all been designed to to release these these creatures from you know the dark levels of 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 dream and nightmare and now they just you know yeah just just press a button and suddenly everybody can you know jump on someone for you know the the most innocent <laughs> uh, point of view sometimes it's just absolutely stunning mm -hmm. and and well, and I see a direct connection to what we're talking about here in your initial question about the the license for parenting, okay? Because I, I see a direct connection to people who say, you know, well, there are consequences for your actions. I think that these people could, 
completely convince themselves within their own quote unquote like moral the moral structure of their lives right that keeping um certain people from being able to experience the you know the miracle of having a having a baby i think they could convince themselves that they're doing it for the good of of everybody else and i've seen it you know i've seen antinatalism hardcore thomas Ligotti style antinatalism go hand in hand with uh you know with pretty left liberal people right and the, mm-hmm. and the, the focus is that you know hey you know, we, we have to save the environment. We have to, you know, keep humanity from destroying itself. So, you know, so we, we genuinely think that people should stop having children, you know, and it's just one of these hardline things. You know, I don't like it, but, you know, I kind of have to do it. And oh, by the way, I don't really love, uh, you know, screaming babies on airplanes. So, you know, it's kind of it's it's fine by me. You know, there's a connection, man. The, the, it's spiritually the same thing. Well, you know, it, it works both ways where I, I've seen parents who just clearly are just having a, a deep psychological meltdown about their children in public. And then they insist that they're they're doing something socially good, raising children. You know, it's like, well, no, you're, no, you're not. And you're clearly not doing that in the moment. Uh, and you're not uh, being really investigated and uh, evaluated, and this isn't really a job because no one, you know, you're not responsible to anyone. So it cuts both ways. I mean, it, it, it's an. I think it can't really be resolved comfortably. Uh, it, it's just too fundamental, too ticklish a topic. But I think it is worth thinking about because. The, the the tenor of society is working its way up to uh, some really serious argument about this that will result in some new social norms and mores. To what extent those are dictated by mobs of people via social media, to what extent uh, artificial intelligence will be involved in statistics, um, because which we're obsessed by statistics, even if we don't believe that they can be trusted, uh, or whether or not some sort of governmental controls. I personally think that we have less to worry about because the government has never seemed very effective at that. And I don't know if any of, of this kind of regulation would really be enforceable. So I don't think in practical terms it's, it's going to amount to much. But I think in the... Um, the jury of public opinion, how people relate to uh, parents and families, uh, you know, that's going to change. I mean, I was, I can remember before COVID came out, I was, uh, uh, at least we were going out bowling and um, there was a family. uh, I mean, they, I don't know, they, you could probably uh, make an inference about, uh, religion and culture about them. I won't give any more details there, but they had four kids. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And behind us, and I won't say anything about the people who made the comment, but the comment was breeders. Uh, I hate that. You yeah, know, that, and that, that boils my blood. I hate I, that. I, you know, I mean, it, it, it's such a, um, 
I mean, everyone I, I think knows the kind of situation I'm talking about, and it's Absolutely. it's completely believable. There's nothing sci-fi about it at all. There are a lot of people out there on both sides of that fence, but I, I just I, I think we're reaching some points of uh, unresolvable tensions around not just the childhood issues at all, but I think it's one example of personal rights versus social responsibilities that Mm -hmm. we're going to have to deal with more effectively than we are at the moment. Because I don't think we're giving young people uh, starting at Gus's age, but, but, you know, people closer to, you know, driver's licenses and uh, checkbooks or, you know, cards, we're not giving them the clues that they're going to need to navigate that because we can't, I mean, I, I don't know what I think about all that. I really don't. I'm it. I just go, wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think going, wow, is, is probably the most mature thing that you can do there. Uh, I am trying to get to that point where I have fewer opinions about this kind of thing at the current stage though. I do, um, I, I really do. I like the way that you uh, framed it as, you know, personal freedom versus social responsibility. Uh, this is a whole other can of worms. So I'll just kind of leave it here. Maybe we can pick it up in part two. Maybe, maybe we'll talk about something else as we kind of wrap up part one here. But I have a real uh, suspicion of things that are framed in 2021 as social responsibility Um, as being products of um, actually just socially acceptable ways for people to express their own personal uh, biases and, and, uh, you know, authoritarian streaks. I think, I think it's all, I think it's cover. I think it's a smokescreen for, for something much more insidious. And, you know, I hate to leave it there for me, at least. I'd, I'd definitely give you kind of the last word on this first part here before we move into part two, but yeah, man. I, I, I don't know if um, what's currently being framed as social responsibility is, in fact, that. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, the one thing I would say, going back to um, our last episode, <clears throat> where you introduced uh, a discussion of, of values that, that you, you know, think are very important and are things that you mm-hmm. want to uh, instill in Gus or certainly, you know, highlight in, in, in the parenting experience. And I think one of them, it was your first one, and I, I don't know if it was because it was first in the sequence, the, the highest priority, but it was one I think that we will continue to sort of look at because it, it was certainly something on my mind a great deal when I was writing this textbook for Rutledge Press, but but it's the, the concept of imagination. And mm-hmm. I, I think that we, I, I, I let you sort of, uh, introduce that in a way that because I agree with it so much and I think it is worth interrogating that idea of imagination a bit more fully and I I actually think it will tie into uh, next week when we talk about Malaysian Flight 370 and some of these uh, things that that fly off the map and apparently disappear from uh, social discussion uh, because right. a lot of imagination is about that. And I think that where you and I and many other people almost have an instantly positive notion of imagination to the point where we, we really didn't query that. I, I I just think, yeah, I mean, I'm so supportive of that. And I think that what we said about it uh, was, was, you know, very reasonable and valid. 
But there are some other aspects to imagination to look at, some darker sides. Mm -hmm. And certainly Mm -hmm. I know that, that one of the issues in our society today is that there's a lot of ambivalence about imagination. It's not just that people lack imagination. Uh, it's not that at all. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an outright attempt to suppress it, to be mm-hmm. afraid of it and to want to control it. And I, I think that is one of the issues that um, I see metaphorically connected to uh, Malaysian Flight 370. I know that might be a stretch for some people, but there are some really interesting things to talk about there because that was a lot more than just a wide body jet disappearing um, a lot more. And I think Mm -hmm. it does tie into these issues of individual versus society imagination as a positive, creative, generative, uh, flexible, uh, diagonal spiral force and, it being something that that a lot of people are really deeply afraid of and wanting to control. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, I think that's great. I think that's a great thing to uh, to bring up next time. Just to clarify before we go here, uh, next time we will be using Malaysia Flight uh, three seventy as a framing device uh, for for the episode. And what we're going to do is we are going to talk about it all the way from part one into part two, and that's how we're going to try it for a few weeks uh we're, we're gonna actually try to kind of leave with a few uh maybe cliffhangers um so that uh yeah so that there's just more of a kind of frame on this but uh i suppose with that we will see you in uh oh you have one more thing chris well i do just just a, a couple of reading suggestions again we're not expecting uh, right, people yes, to pick yes, those yes. up but i think that this is very relevant of a way of transitioning a focus on childhood and childhood as social construct to a larger question of imagination of the individual and the the social body. Uh, Two books that I I go back to, uh, Bruno Bettelheim's The Uses of Enchantment, uh, which I think is a, a very interesting and powerful resource on folklore and fairy tales and their psychological importance, but also their their functionality in, in cultural terms. Functionality, because they, they, they can be uh, really looked at in that sort of structural anthropology sense. And Bettelheim does that very well. Uh, and the other book uh, is the one that really launched Joseph Chilton Pierce's career, uh, The Crack in the Cosmic Egg. He's maybe mm. uh, best known for The Magical Child. I-, I think he's a really important figure. We don't have a lot of great uh, social humanists who have focused on on childhood. Jean Piaget is, is so often referred to. But I think Pierce is an amazingly beautiful prose writer. I put him in the category of, of Lewis Thomas. And The Crack in the Cosmic Egg is also a wonderful conduit to some other great thinkers. He introduced me to Susan Langdon, who I think is an enormously underrated figure of the 20th century. Uh, Very worth checking out. Uh, But Pierce is really the fulfillment of that 1960s, 1970s promise of an enlightened humanist thinker with some real rigor of mind. This is not a new age you know, not to use that word too, or that phrase too disparagingly, but 
there's no pablum in this. There's no, uh, no. it's not a pop, pop psych book. It became enormously successful, but that's because it's very well written by a very wise person. And we shouldn't hold the success of it in its day uh, against it because it's still very, very interesting. And it, it has a lot to say to people uh completely independent of the parenthood experience. I mean, I read it in my 40s. I had nothing to do with, with child raising at all. I just found it an amazingly, beautifully written book. He's just a great prose writer. But he has a lot to say about these issues of psychological fulfillment, individual uh, expression, imaginative living, and connection with deep, deep magical sacred aspects of life against indexed against social restrictions, social codes, uh, mm. social structures. And it's a very, very compelling adult, mature, complex balance that he is mm -hmm. trying to lead us toward. And I, I, I just think it's a really interesting touchstone. So those two books might help inform. I know they don't sound exactly like, the uh, the lead up to a, a missing aircraft, but think about it a little bit more about the nature of fairy tales and magic and these stories that hold all of, of, of the human species together. It's a worldwide phenomenon. I, I think, in fact, they're very good introductions to uh, the, the modern folklore of our time that's still being invented. Excellent. I picked that book up on your recommendation, as a matter of fact, so I'll finish that up before next episode and have more to say about it um all right folks thanks so much for listening to this first part and we will see you in part two